Well, there was a census taker that was going around the town collecting census information, trying to get all the information he can from people to gather the census. So he came to this one house, and the lady was sitting on her, sitting on her porch, and he walked up to her and said, Ma'am, I'm with the United States Census Bureau, and I need to get all the information I can. So he's asking all the information and everything. And he asked her this question. He said, well, do you have any children? And she said, well, yes, I do. I have four. And she said, well, can you give me the names of your children? She said, sure. There's Eni, Meany, and Miney, and George. <laughs> and the guy looked up from his paper, and he looked at her, and he said, George? She said, yeah, George. Says, why did you name him George? Says, because we didn't want no more. Mm -mm. I just read them. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is a, this this sermon this morning. It, it's it's the power to move mountains, and it's a little bit different type of sermon. It's probably a type of sermon that you'd preach on a Sunday night or a Wednesday. But the Lord has laid it on my heart, and I just feel like that this is where I need to be. This morning, so I want you to turn, if you will, over to the. I want you to put your finger there in, in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, and then also we're going to be uh, we're going to be also uh, over in Mark 9. Mark 9. Start with verse 14 there. Mark 9, verse 14. Listen, listen to uh, this story, and you'll be. This is a very familiar story. It is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. Verse 14, and when they had come to the multitude, uh, the man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers severely, for he often falls on the fire and often into water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you, bringing him here to me? And Jesus rebuked the demon and came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And so Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say unto this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come except by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Well, Father, I need you this morning. I need you more than any other time. But I, I you know, Lord, we, we've... We get so used and we get so commonplace with sermons that we uh, we just it sort of comes in and but it just passes over our head and Lord that's the last thing that I want your words to be uh, Jesus because one time Jesus they sent two soldiers to get Jesus and they didn't get him because they said never had a man spoke like this man so we don't want to water down your word. We want to preach the whole gospel, the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God. 
So, Lord, I pray simply this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. For you're our strength and you're our redemption. You're our everything, Father. And we pray that you'd be with us this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Bible tells me that Jesus had was coming back from cursing the fig tree. It died in front of it died in front of their eyes. And then the disciples, he was talking to the disciples, and so Jesus answered and said to them, He says, If I say to you, you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Let me ask you this question. Are you facing a mountain this morning? Are you facing a health problem? A marriage problem? Financial problems? A lack of purpose? Have you ever, have you, have you actually spoke to the name of Jesus about the problems that you have? One of the things that James tells us is the very reason that we have not is because we ask not. I mean, I think that many of us have told everybody else about our problems, and some people, when I see them coming, I almost want to go the other way because they'll tell you, they'll whip out their x-rays and show it to you if they think they can. But we tell everybody else about our problems, but the one person who can do something about our problems is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're just the one person we don't go to. We don't go to him. I love what old-time Christians used to say. They used to call it praying through. And what that meant was that meant that you prayed and prayed until you finally felt like you'd gotten an answer, that the Holy Spirit had spoken to you and told you that. So do you believe the words of Jesus when he says that if you say unto this mountain, be removed and it will be done? The Bible tells me that Jesus had gone on the transfiguration on the mountain And in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with him. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, running to him and greeting him. Jesus took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, on top of this mountain. Many times you'll read in the Word where Jesus looks at the other disciples and he will say to them, you all wait here while we go over here and pray. Now, I have have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus loved every one of his disciples. But there's a great lesson in this. And the great lesson for us as people, there's one relationship that I think more important than any other relationship in many ways, and that's a relationship of being a friend. It's the one relationship that many of us don't really develop. And no wonder we we stay alone. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and, and, and they're coming down off the mountain. Now these three disciples have been... have have seen one of the most spectacular scenes any human could ever see. Jesus is transfigured and glorified before them, taking and talking there, and he's talking with Moses, and he's talking with Elijah. 
The Bible tells us simply what Jesus was talking to them about. It says that he was talking about the fact that he was going to the cross. That was what he's talking about. I think there's twice in the Bible that, that why, why was he transfigured? What was this happening here? I think there's twice in the Bible where Jesus had a choice. He was when he was baptized. Why, you know, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He, you know, he, he never sinned one time. He never had a bad thought. But when he was baptized, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord descended like a dove, and a voice was heard, and it said, and there you got the Trinity, God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and there's the Son. But when it said the, the Holy Spirit descended, and the voice was heard out of heaven, and God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He says the very same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah, Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets, and they're there with Jesus, and they're talking about, the Bible uses the word, his demise. In other words, he was going to the cross. And you hear the voice of God, he tells Peter to be quiet and listen to him. Because what Peter said, he said, it's good that we're here, Lord. Let me build a uh, uh, let me build a hut for Moses, one for Elijah, and then one for Jesus. God told him, shut up, and said, you listen to my son. And the reason he told him, shut up, what Peter was proposing, that then you would have had a church of Moses, you'd had another church of Elijah, and you'd had another church of Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. And what we've done to him in this world, or with all the religions and other things in the world, we've tried to take him and make him not preeminent. He is the one. You know, one of the things that, that the Bible teaches us over in the book of John, chapter 14, and one of the things it teaches, you want to get people mad, all you got to do is mention John 14, 6, because it talks about the exclusiveness of Jesus. What do you mean by the exclusiveness, Lee? I mean, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except by me. It says in the book of Acts, it also says, there's no other name given under heaven where men might be saved. But Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John there. And the reason he's taking him, taking them there because they, Jesus divides people up. He says, now, and there were other eight disciples were down from the mountain. Every person has three, kinds, has three kinds of people in their life. They have three kinds of people in their life. They have a hireling. Who's a hireling? With Jesus. That was Judas. He had, a, had a, uh, the one that betrayed him. The Bible tells us that the hireling is one that when the, it was one when the, when the, the, the wolf comes, when the wolf comes, when the wolf comes, that the hireling runs. That's what it says. He runs. And so Judas was a hireling. Every one of us have got those kind of people in our life in some ways. Then he talked about he had those that he would call servants. That was the other eight disciples. I believe he loved them. And you and I, all of us, have many acquaintances in our life. But the truth of the matter is, we have many people acquaintances, but we have very few friends. He had three people in his life, Peter, James, and John, though, that they saw Jesus at his best. They saw him when he was uh, transfigured on the, on the mountain. They saw the glory of God come down. And they also saw him, too, also they saw him at his worst when he was in the garden and he began to weep and cry and his sweat, the Bible says, became great drops of blood. 
We all have those kind of people in our life. We need to develop those relationships that we have as friends. But what was those two things about? I believe with all my heart Jesus was making the decision. In Philippians it says he humbled him down, humbled himself down even unto the cross. What was he saying? I don't believe Jesus had to go to the cross. He went to the cross for you and I. If Jesus, if Jesus at that point, either in his baptism or even he was, he was saying that at that time, I'm willing to take on the role of being the Messiah. And when he took on that role, he could have, he at that point, he was saying, I'm willing to die for you people. He could have gone back to heaven at that time, but if he'd have gone back, he would have gone back without you and without me. But he didn't do that. When the Bible tells us that God so loved the world, He just didn't love us, He so loved us, that's what it means. You know, and so you got three people in your life. The Bible also says don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Sometimes you don't tell everything that you know to everybody. Now some people you can tell because they're your friends. But other people, you don't tell them everything. And the reason you don't, because there's a great example of that over in, over in the book of 2 Kings, where Hezekiah, he tells the Babylonians come to visit him, and he, sh- and, and he shows them everything. Isaiah comes, and Isaiah asks him this question, did you, what did you show them? Did you show them everything? And Hezekiah says, yes, I showed them everything. He says, then what's going to happen? They're going to invade you. And years later, they did invade. The Babylonians came in because they saw what Hezekiah had said. You don't tell everybody everything. Some people put it on Facebook. I hate Facebook, really, being honest with you. So Jesus comes off the mountain, and there's this multitude of people around the eight disciples, including scribes and Pharisees. And the Jewish experts were, were there, and they were, and, and, and they were angry with the disciples. They're asking them all kinds of questions. And so in Mark 9, verse 17 and 18, it, it, it says simply that they said, and one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever he seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they could not do it. They could not do it. So just as a spiritual faith, just as we have spiritual faith, it must be received by faith. It also must be lived by faith. I made a statement here last Sunday, and I, I want you to listen to it again, and that was it, simply when I said that God knows what you believe. He knows by what you believe, by what you do. But how the Lord brings us to reality that we need Him. Peter, James, and John had, had just seen Jesus in glory. But now they come down from the mountain and they're brought face to face with their own lack of power, which Jesus is going to tell them was due to their lack of faith in him. I want you to notice the word in him. It's not just a lack of faith. I've seen some Christian people sometimes because somebody's praying for somebody and and that person to be healed and they're not healed, they go to that person and they say, well, you just didn't have enough. I've actually seen this. People go to other people and say, you didn't have enough faith. No, it's not how much faith you have because he's going to talk about a grain of mustard seed here. It's who you have faith in. That's the difference. We don't heal anybody. 
We, we have a lot of people that come up here and ask for us to touch and pray for them and heal them, and, and the Bible tells us what to do there. It says that if any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, and the prayer of faith shall raise the sick, anointed with oil, and, they, and if they committed sins, it shall be forgiven. And so we practice that in this church. But I don't have the power to heal anybody. Jesus does it. That's the difference. So Peter, James, and John had just seen everything. They'd come off the mountain of glory into the valley of despair. From the dazzling majesty of the unveiled Christ, from the presence of Moses and Elijah, God the Father, and the glorious preview of the Lord's second coming to the reality of a sin-cursed world at its worst. But is that not what we experience? We have a mountaintop experience, some of us do. We, you know, uh, we, we, uh, and, and, and then life sort of sets in. We go to a retreat or we go to a Bible conference or we go to somebody and, boy, we're in there and we're just on fire for the Lord. And we just say, Lord, you know, one of the things, man, I'm just going to serve you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to read so many chapters a day now. I'm going to witness like crazy. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then we get back and life comes in and everything. And the next thing you know, we're not doing what we said we were going to do. The father in his deep anguish pleads with Jesus to have compassion on his son. For he was very ill and it was serious. May I say that every unsaved person is subject to the control of Satan? Remember the story that Jesus tells in the Bible about the rich man who tore, said, I will tear, he was so wealthy and so rich, he said, I will tear down my barns and I'll build greater. And the Bible says, Jesus says this, he says, Thou fool, thy soul shall be required of thee this that night. And when he, when he says that, what, the really, what it says in the Greek is really this. It says, they're asking for your soul. Every unsaved person here that has never come to Jesus, I'm going to simply say this to you. You're in danger. You're in danger. In Matthew 17, verse 16, he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. The Bible tells me Jesus gets upset with them. He gets upset with them because if you remember, he sent them out two by two in the book of Luke. And they returned with joy. When they returned with joy, they said, man, even the demons are subject to us. So the question is, why did they fail? Was it because Jesus was not with them? No, because before when he sent them out two by two, Jesus was not with them before. No, they failed to appropriate the power available to them, and this grieved Jesus. We fail to allow God to work in our life the way he wants to work. That we, we fail to understand that it's not what you do. The Bible says in the book of Colossians, it's Christ in you that's a hope of glory. As Christ looks at you, he looks at your life. What is the hope he has for you? Of you allowing Jesus Christ to live his life through you in such a way as Paul, as, uh, as, as Paul said one time, it's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus that lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So they have failed to appropriate the power. Does the Lord become grieved when we don't take him at his word, but rather fuss and complain? You know, I, I, I did a sermon here not too 
many weeks ago when Jesus got upset with the disciples in the boat and he got upset with them in the boat because, he, because they, uh, they were out in the middle of the lake and, and, and he's asleep in the boat and they're, they're, and, and they're about to drown, they think, and, and the water's coming in the boat and everything. So they go wake Jesus up and he calms the wind and the sea down and they look at him and say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And he gets upset with them. Why did he get upset with them? He didn't get upset because they were scared to death. I said I would be scared to death. I was out in the middle of that lake like that. And it was going on. No, he got upset with them because if you read that, the first verse he says, let us come and go to the other side. How many things has God told us that he's going to do, but we don't really believe him? That we grieve him in that way. That we grieve him in that way. Think about this. Jesus from eternity past was accustomed to the angels doing his will. The Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' will is always done in heaven. There's never a time that his will, he had the angels there. He could tell the angels to do it, and they immediately, yes, Lord, we'll do it. Then he comes down here to us. Does the Lord become grieved when we don't take him at his word, but rather that what he hears from us that we fuss and we complain? Think about this. Jesus from eternity past was accustomed to this. He was grieved by the blindness and the faithlessness of God's people. He'd chosen to endow with authority. I wonder if Satan was whispering in Jesus' ear, if they don't trust you while you're with them now, how, how can you expect them to, uh, to, to, after you're gone, back to heaven? But Jesus never varies from his divine mission. Then the disciples came to him privately, the Bible says, in verse 19. And the reason they came to him privately because they were embarrassed. And Jesus tells them the reason they could not heal the son. Was because of their little faith. And he goes on to verse 20. And what he says in verse 20 is, is simply he says that then he commanded disciples, or excuse me, verse 20, he says this, he says, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and be there, if, if, and if it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That's what he says. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the amount of faith but if you have faith in Jesus, that's the mustard seed. But they had said among the crowd in the mountainside when Jesus charged them with being anxious or worried because of little faith. They had been there when God provided for their physical needs. When the fierceness of the storm of the Sea of Galilee, they despaired of their life. He rebuked the wind and sea. And he said to them, Oh, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Peter walking on the water, he said to them, O ye of little faith. And how Jesus is charging them with little faith. There are three kinds of faith. They had saving faith, which we cannot lose when we come to Jesus. They had trusting faith to some degree or on they would not attempt to heal the young man or they wouldn't have attempted to try to heal him. But they lacked sufficient faith to empower them in Jesus to heal this young man. Why am I preaching the sermon? 
Because I really believe in the days ahead, you and I are going to experience unbelievable stuff. I'm not a prophet. I don't believe, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not telling you I'm prophesying something, whatever. But I'm telling you that from all outlooking and everything else, we're going to be in trouble. We may be in trouble in the next few weeks. The reason they're telling us simply that diesel fuel is, is uh, on, the, on the verge of being used up. If that happens, now I want you to think about what brings your food to you, what brings everything in the world to you, if that happens, if it does happen. There's all kinds of things happening so that we've got to be prepared. So when they ask why couldn't Jesus, he said little faith. But he also says this in verse 21. He said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, some people have said, as I've studied this, they said, well, uh, that fasting is not found in the manuscript in Matthew 17. But does that mean that Jesus didn't teach fasting? No. Because in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 16, he, he says this, moreover, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast, if you ever fast. No, he says this, he says, when you fast. In other words, the Lord is taking for granted that there will be times in our life that we're going to fast. He said simply, however, this kind does not come except by prayer and fast. When you're facing a mountain, what he's saying to us is, what is he wanting us to do? To fast and accompany that with our prayer. The Bible is full of scriptures about fasting. The book of Isaiah is full of scriptures on fasting. Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 12. It says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. He says this in, in Psalm 69, 10. Uh, he says, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. He says in Daniel 10, 3. Uh, he says, I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all until three whole weeks were fulfilled. He says in Nehemiah 1, 4, he says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. He says in Psalms 35, 13, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return into my own heart. He says in Luke, 237 and this woman was a widow talking about Anna and about 84 years who did not depart from the temple or would serve God with fasting and prayers night and day and Acts 14 23 so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting they commended them to the Lord commended them to the Lord in whom they had they had believed I could go on and on there's 109 verses in the Bible that deal with fasting so why fast? Let me give you some reasons why we need to fast. To be sincere with the Lord. You know, I believe that many times our prayers aren't answered because God looks upon our hearts and He sees that we're not sincere. We ask Him for things, and I think this is what James is talking about in James 4, verse 2 and 3, when he says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war you do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on to verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasure. In other words, you're asking for it with the wrong motives. You're asking with the wrong motives. And so 
what fasting does, we come to God. When we come and we're fasting and praying, we come and as a result of that, what happens is God sees the sincerity in our heart. You ask for things in order for God's goodness and grace to be magnified or for the sake of His glory and honor. They're not asking in order to be able to fulfill His perfect given will, but to fulfill our sinful lust. And that's why God won't answer the prayers many times. To desire something from the Lord and accompany it with fasting, I believe it demonstrates a consecration that you are sincere. Because you've gone without food every time you have a hunger pain, that's a signal to, uh, to persevere in prayer to the Lord. So why fast? Uh, many in the Old Testament fasted when they were in- intervening for somebody. Do you? Pray? We got a box down here. It's got full. It's full of names. These are names from families that they're saying, I'm praying for this person. to be. But let me ask you something. How often have you prayed? After you drop that name in that box, how often have you prayed for them? God knows whether or not we mean business or not. That's what I'm saying to you. Uh, fasting for God's guidance when I need God's guidance. Fasting can help me in that. Fasting to express grief. When Saul and Jonathan were killed, David fasted in his grief for them. Jehoshaphat fasted when a great army of Moab and Ammon came around uh, against Judah. He fasted. Uh, All Israel fasted when they had sinned and allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines. Just fasting just to humble yourself before the Lord, you can demonstrate by fasting. To express concern over the work of God. Nehemiah, when he heard that the wall was broken down, he said he fasted. To know how to minister to the needs of others. To fast in such a way. To overcome temptation. Jesus knew the temptation was coming. The Bible says he fasted and he prayed for 40 days. He knew Satan was coming. But greatest of all, just to express love and worship to God the Father. That you're so caught up with his presence. And you want his presence in your life and in your home and your job and every part. That you fast to get that presence and let God see that. Now there's a practical side to this. There's a lot of misunderstanding about fasting. There's no commandment to fast. I realize that. Yet all the great revivals, if you look at the Welch revival, if you look at the great Herbides revival, if you look at the revival that happened out, out the, I can't remember what it was, out west, all those revivals started. Why? People were so concerned that they fasted and they prayed. But if you fast and you don't pray or read the Bible, then all you did was go without eating. That's the difference. The goal is to replace food with time of prayer and reading God's Word. There are many ways to fast. Can I, can I do for a, a meal for a day? Yeah, every day. There, you don't have to do a 40-day fast. You don't have to do a three-day fast. Maybe you're just going to fast for a meal, whatever. A, a, one, a meal once a, once a day or something like that. Maybe you're just going to fast once a week or something like that. A partial fast is a Daniel fast. We're abstain from eating certain foods with Daniel. Three-day fast... But this is something I would say you work up to. You work up to. And one of the things that you need to do when you're fasting is take a lot of, drink a lot of water. Fasting for other things like TV or social media. Can I, can I leave off that? Yeah, it, I guess you could. But fasting throughout the Bible predominantly is about food. 
But fasting in Scripture is primarily about that. But you could, as long as you're, when I fast and I get hunger pains, what is that telling me? I need to get in the Word. I need to read. If I really want God to move in my life. The whole idea of what I'm talking to you about this morning is that you draw near to God. In Matthew 9, 14, 15, and Mark 2, 18, the disciples came to Jesus. And they came and they, they said this. They said, uh, the, the disciples of John came to him saying also the scribes and the Pharisees, the legal people. Why, why do you, why, and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Now listen to what Jesus, Jesus said in this. Here's what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, why should my disciples fast when I'm with them? You see, the whole purpose of fasting is what? To get God's presence. Let me, let's be honest with this. And I know this sermon is a little different. Now, I told you it was different. But listen to me. How long has it been since you really felt God's presence? How long has it been? If, if you had to come down and write down, okay, this is the prayer that God answered for me. How long has it been since a prayer was answered? You see what I'm saying? If, if you've got somebody in this box, if you've got somebody, a son, a daughter, a, 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 a husband or a, or a wife or whoever it may be, a friend that you really love and care about, and they're not saved, and we talk about Jesus coming, have you, how, how often do you pray for that person? You see what I'm saying? I'm saying to you simply, we've got to get to the place, if we really want to have revival, people talk about revival, if we really want something to really happen in our lives, then God's got to see that we really mean business with Him. You know, I don't, I don't want to be an ordinary church. I hate to say that to you, but I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that we're, we're mediocre. I don't want to be dying on the vine someplace, you know. You know, I don't want to be some of the chosen frozen or whatever else it is. I want God to move in this place and really move on hearts and souls. I want people to walk in that door and feel like God loves them more than anything else in this world, but they cannot sit there because of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon their life. Amen? The ultimate purpose of what I'm saying to you is to enjoy the fellowship of Jesus. You know. Now, on the 18th, on the on the 18th of November, because that's only about a week before, about a week, week and a half, two weeks before, we bring in Brian Holdhouse. To do the, the, the you know, Brandon, excuse me. Anyway, we bring him in here. And, you know, we're, we're, we're really blessed with this man coming. His last conference he had, they had over 30,000 people turned in to him on YouTube. And we got him coming here. But we, we need to prepare the ground. We need to prepare the ground to be fertile. This is what an opportunity it is for you and I 
to ask people that we love and care of them to come to church. What an opportunity it is to give that person a real opportunity to come and find the Lord in this day and time that we're living in. And so I'm calling for a a 24-hour day, November the 18th. Help me out, Thelma, wherever you are, if I'm right. What? Yeah. November the 18th. We've done this before. But we're doing a 24-hour prayer time. Now, we'll have, we'll have lists out there. You don't have to come and stay all 24 hours. But what we're going to do, we'll give, you, we'll give you a time slot. And you can come. If you want to come longer, that's great. That's fine. But come and, and just put your time down. And we're going to have somebody on this altar 24 hours all that time praying for that revival. Praying that God's going to move in our midst. And I'm asking the church as a whole... For that day that we fast. If you can go 24 hours without eating, praise God. Don't do something to make yourself sick. It may be what you're going to do. You say, well, Lee, I'll fast, I'll fast one meal that day. Or maybe you can do a Daniel fast and you pull out just certain foods that you're not going to eat. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Guys, we've got to be proactive in this. We've got to do this. Let me close this way. One of the great men that I, I love to read about is a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was a great man of prayer. He was a man, and, and, and in time, uh, in, in 33 years, when, in this time when there were so many orphans in, in England, Mueller housed more than 10,000 orphans. 10,000. Not one time did George Mueller ever go to anybody and ask for money. Not one time. I read one story where the kids were sitting around and they had no, they had no uh, food for breakfast. Now I forget how many kids they had in that house. And he just he told everybody to take their plate, put the, set the table, put the forks and everything on, and they prayed. They prayed. All of a sudden there was a knock on the door with eggs and, and flour and other things, you know. I heard Jack Howells years ago talk about how his, his mother, he, Jack Howells was raised in a two-room dirt shack. His dad was an alcoholic. His mother was a great Christian lady said, and said we had a little two rooms, one a bedroom and the other, and said in the kitchen they had a, she just had taken a blanket and stretched it across a little uh, cupboard that was there, had what little food, and says, I never will forget says one, one, uh, one day that we didn't have anything to eat. And when we didn't have anything to eat, says my mama, so we watched, we were, we were sitting there, me and my sister sitting there, and all of a sudden my mother went behind that blanket, said we could see her. She thought we couldn't see her, but she, we'd see her feet underneath that blanket with the, hung up there. And so my mother would go in there and she would start praying and telling God how they had, didn't have anything to eat. He said we we're sitting there and all of a sudden we hear a knock on the door. And so we'd go to the door and somebody would say, it's goodwill. We got your turkey, <laughs> got your turkey and everything ready. And said we would sit down and eat. And said my mama would dance around the table because God heard. God heard. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what I believe with all my heart that God is wanting to do. So Mueller, 
He, you know, he prayed millions of dollars, never asked for one dime, traveled to scores of countries preaching the gospel, and he recorded 50,000 answered prayers. George Mueller one day had five friends he loved very much. And he began to pray for them. He would pray that they would be saved. Finally, after it took, he'd been praying, he prayed every day. Never missed a day praying for these five men. And after months, one of them came to know the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. For the fourth man, it took 25 years. 25 years praying for this man to be, to be saved. And finally, he was saved. Mueller persevered prayer until his death for the fifth friend. Throughout those 52 years, he never missed a day praying for this man. He never gave up hope that he would accept Christ. When Mueller died, the man hadn't given his heart to the Lord. But Mueller was rewarded because as they were lowering George Mueller's casket in the grave, this friend dropped to his knees by his grave. And gave his heart to the Lord. Don't tell me God doesn't want to answer your prayers. I'm tired of mediocrity. I'm tired of, of, of this world looking at us and looking at the church as if we don't exist or whatever. I want them to look at us and see, realize that the power of God is so real. It's unbelievable here. But it's going to take you and I coming to a place that we pray more than we've ever prayed. That we fast and pray. That God looks at us and He sees our heart. He sees our heart as being tender in what we really want. And you know this is why the Bible says the fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? availeth much. The fervent prayer. You can be fervent when you're fasting. So I hope and pray that you will fast with me on that day. And this will be a continued thing, maybe, that you'll, you'll see as something that you can add to your prayer life that will really help you in a lot of ways. We're going to have a verse of invitation.